2: Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. This is part two of a two-part table of contents episode where we lay out the topics of each of our first 33 episodes. If you haven't heard episode 34 yet, which is part one, we suggest you check that out before listening to the rest of this episode. And before we get started, check out blueapron.com missing for your first three meals free. For episode 17, we released The Things in Mora's Car, an episode that made folks feel closer to Mora than ever. There's something very personal and humanizing about hearing the things she left behind in her car.
0: I remember while we were recording that episode and reading through the, the list, the the detailed catalog of what she left in the car, just relating it to women that are in my life, just feel closer to to. The person than to the story and I feel like episode 17 was a good turning point for the listeners in that sense
2: first thing we have is a tundra garment bag green we have an open tic-tac container an espn zone card mci prepaid phone cards tti national inc calling card Samsung
0: travel adapter and some paperwork. Yeah, miscellaneous paperwork. A pair of Puma sweatpants, black and white express polo, uh, long sleeve, a sports bra, Old Navy V-neck sweater. You have an Abercrombie and Fitch pants, Old Navy sweatshirt, sneakers, pink sock, with cow design on it. I like guess I say the first time I ever read this like it kind of made me sad because this is it it just struck me as somebody who is like packing and going somewhere and not necessarily planning anything. It almost made me feel guilty to read this.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's almost it almost feels like an invasion of privacy. Next up is The Now Missing, Episode 18. It was an interview with a controversial blogger who likes to remain anonymous. The episode was met with immediate criticism, and the blogger fired back in a major way, lashing out at the listeners, the Murray family, and us. For that reason, we thought it best to disassociate ourselves, and we removed Episode 18.
0: So no new or important information in Episode 18, just a semi-interesting character in the hunt we've had for obsessed people for the podcast and the documentary. Ultimately, an experience we regret, but was probably inevitable during the course of the podcast. And here is a clip
2: from John Smith from that episode where he talks about a spooky story about a wood chipper.
3: I've heard several different stories. And we're not sure if, of course, if there are rumors or not, because, I mean, like, I mean, we've heard that she was taken and was taken to this party, and these guys were like all messed up on some heavy drugs, and they ended up killing her, skinning her, dismembering her, and sharing her body parts, um, like some kind of ritual. Now, I find that hard to believe that, you know, that can happen, and no one's caved in yet, no one's given anybody up yet Um, and he lives about 15 miles north of the um, accident scene and it was said that the party was at his house that night and that's where it happened and that they did it in the garage well state police have been to his house and there's no evidence of any of that so again was it just a something that people put out there like you know the the lore of you know oh yeah I did it like Rick said you know oh she's in my cellar and she's a great cook you know, was it just these druggies out there running their mouth to other people? You know, because people have no, been known to say, you keep it up, bitch, and I'll do to you what I did to Maura.
0: Then we resumed with another two-part interview with John Smith. In episode 19, we talked about the rag and the tailpipe. This was also the first time we heard about Witness A.
6: Witness A says that When she was passed by that vehicle, it was number 001. It was before the 727 timeline. So where was number 001 headed with its blue lights on? Where did it go? And why did, at 746, did number 002, the the sedan, show up on scene?
2: Just to clarify this uh, pass-by. So at about 7:20, witness A is passed by the 001 SUV cruiser heading east towards 112. The blue lights were on but no siren was on. And then witness A loses sight. About 3 minutes later, witness A is on Route 112 at this point, heading east and is passed again by the same SUV 001 also going east towards Weathered Barn Corner. And then witness A loses sight of car 001. And then witness A passes the accident scene and sees car 001, this police SUV, parked nose to nose with a dark car but does not notice any people by the vehicle. Witness A proceeds east and calls
0: home from Beaver Pond, as she always does, as you stated. And John brought out the information about Morris' car being taken to Mike Lavoy's personal garage that night.
6: I asked Fred, I said, so where, where, when did you first see the vehicle? Turns out, Mike Lavoy's personal house. And in he was in, in the garage with his other personal car in his own personal garage. It was not brought to his shop, which I find another big oddity. What? Yeah, Yeah. I can see you driving home that night. And if you know, leaving it on the flatbed and bringing it to your house. And then the next morning, you know, driving into work with it, which is 10 minutes down the road and leaving it at the shop. But I cannot see bringing it to your house, unloading it and put it in your garage and it being there for four days. Until Fred saw it. Makes no sense. Fred goes into the garage with uh, Lavoie and the police. They instructed Fred to take the towel out of the exhaust. Who did? The police. They said, "If it won't start with that in there. You're going to have to take that rag out. You're going to have to take that rag out. Fred went to the back of the car. He took the rag out.
0: episode 21, we introduce a new voice, a female who chose to go by KF. She's a researcher who helped us behind the scenes. And KF talks about the journalist from 17 Magazine who wrote a piece on Mora's case in June of 2004.
1: The writer, her name is Vanessa Gregoriadis. We have this fact that the dogs were able to trace Morris scent about 100 yards from the car. Um, That's the fact. That's, you know, kind of the baseline. And what's been read into that over time is well, she clearly got into a car because the dogs lost her scent at a a specific location on the road. Now, what Thomas York, Sergeant York said at the time was that um, the dogs were out there a couple days later, and it's really best to do. Uh, dog scenting immediately after someone disappears which obviously makes sense I mean other people are walking on that road cars are driving by and and moving everything around but his opinion at the time and I tend to agree is that you have to take into account when you talk about where the dog lost the scent that a factor in that may have been because the trail was old Um, of course it is possible that it ends because she got picked up at that spot but it's equally possible that the scent had been compromised over those couple of days, and that that's where it ended. So I think that's a situation where we kind of take this as fact, as her, her scent ended, therefore she got into a car, and I think we have to be really careful to go back to the original facts and say, well, maybe that's true, but maybe it's really just because the area was compromised by regular road traffic.
0: Right, because it had been a couple days later.
1: Right, exactly. It wasn't immediately after it happened.
0: Episode
2: 22 was a timeline of facts assembled for us by KF. We spoke only of what we knew of the events leading up to Mora's disappearance. On to February 9th. This is the day that Mora goes missing. Lieutenant John Scarenza stated that Mora Murray was using the internet until 4 a.m., she has no activity on her cell phone until 12.55 p.m. when she calls Linda Salamone, the owner of a condo in North Conway, New Hampshire. Linda has no recollection of a conversation with Mora, but is confident that she did not rent her condo to Mora or anyone else
0: on that date. Now, according to the people that we've been talking to, some pretty credible sources, we know that the police did not talk to Linda Salamone. So that raises the question as to where the police, with their investigation, where their collective heads were at. How do you not interview—and if I'm wrong, I need to see some sort of documentation that a conversation did happen. But we have a very credible source that said the police did not talk to Linda. How do you not talk to the person who was quite possibly one of the last people the person missing spoke to? It's a good question. Highlight that one. Maura then calls her UMass voicemail twice,
2: followed by a call to 1-800-GO-STOW. And Stowe Mountain is a ski resort in New England. She then calls Billy's cell phone, which goes to voicemail. And at the exact time she calls Billy, he is calling Kate Markopoulos, Maura's friend's cell phone, which is why Maura's call was sent to voicemail.
0: So after she checks her dorm voicemail, she calls GO-STOW and then calls Billy's cell phone goes to voicemail because he is on the phone with Kate Markopoulos. and then Billy checks his voicemail and then makes three calls to Morris' cell phone which go unanswered his calls are 3 4 and 6 minutes after her call to him her original call to him but she doesn't pick up at that point so i think I think you can highlight we, that area <laughs> i think we, yeah i think i think we can highlight that area um something something's kind of something's kind of going down and I'm not saying that in a way where you know a plan is being hatched but more is more is calling places that would suggest that she's going to go uh visit go stow, uh the condo in North Conway calls billy checks her voicemail you know this is all stuff that like it seems like the communication was all supposed to be happening, the plan or for whatever, you know, plan was happening, was all happening in this, this time period.
2: Episodes 23 and 24 were recorded on the 12-year anniversary of Mora's disappearance. John Smith assembled a group of locals interested in the case, and he spoke to them about his thoughts and findings.
3: These statements were given to me on, on Sunday by Fred. We had a great two-hour conversation. Um, I've really grown to like the man a lot. He, he's very honest and funny as hell. He's really funny. So, yeah, he's great. He's a character. He's a character for sure. So Fred's reasons for FBI takeover. there was a state police officer at Moore's accident scene on Monday night on Route 112, which is a state police patrolled state highway. On Wednesday, the commander of this officer's unit, Troop F, said that Wednesday was the first that they had heard of the accident. How can that be? They had an officer at the scene that night. What did this guy do? Nobody knows because there is no report. His own outfit has no idea what their own officer did that night. Everyone else who was there that we can identify has said what they did and saw, except for the state police officer, who still hasn't been heard from to this day. And my daughter has been missing ever since. No wonder they won't release any records. Only the FBI can make these guys talk. We have a witness who reported seeing Haverhill Police SUV 001 at the accident at about 7.35. Cecil Smith arrived at 7.46 in the Haverhill Police sedan 002. Who was in the Explorer SUV 001? Where was it at 7.46 p.m.? Why isn't it in the report? What did this officer do? My daughter has been missing ever since, and these guys aren't saying Only the FBI can make them talk. A woman came to our motel at the Wells River Motel and told us that she had heard police officers arguing about jurisdiction in this case at the scene. Who were these officers? Could they have been the state police officer and the mystery driver of 001? How did they resolve their differences? The sign for the next town, where there is no local police coverage at night, is visible 200 yards to the east of the accident. Beyond that sign, the highway, is the state police officer's responsibility. Maura didn't go west, so she had to have gone east. The local responders didn't go east past that sign. Where did the state policeman go? What did the state policeman do? My daughter has been missing ever since. Only the FBI can make this guy talk. And here's the clincher. I've seen three different police dispatch reports for the time frame of the accident. How can the same event have three official different versions? These folks aren't offering any explanation for this. Only the FBI can crack this local local enigma because everyone involved is on the mute, hoping this case blows over and goes away. The police will be successful in just sitting on Moore's case for the next 50 years until we're all dead unless the FBI takes it over because the FBI is the only force that can pierce the local Blue Brotherhood. Please help me get them involved. They are my daughter's only chance. Thank you, Fred Murray. And as Fred was walking out my door, he said, "And I want to tell you something by a Roman philosopher from about 2,000 years ago, juvenile, who said, for who
2: is to guard the guards themselves? And if you want to sign the petition, there is a link in the show notes. For episode 25, we spoke with Aaron and Justin of the Generation Y podcast. They did us a solid over a year ago and mentioned this podcast on their podcast. We told them then that we'd love to have them on and talk about Mora's case. It took us 25 episodes, but we eventually got there. And what transpired is what we found to be an interesting conversation.
5: I'm looking at Occam's razor as a variety of factors, her taking down of everything in her room, putting it in boxes, stacking it up, putting that putting that printed email on there, uh notifying her teacher she was leaving, not telling any family if if we take that as the word, not telling family where she was going and just taking off it, to me it just keeps adding up to she's leaving her buddy, <laughs> she's leaving her family, she's leaving school, leaving her boyfriend It's like an abandonment. She's abandoning that life. And to me, she's not abandoning it for a brighter life. When people get depressed or they're having a break of some kind, they don't see another side as being green. They see it as being black. So to me, she was just going away. And the wreck to me indicates she was upset. She's obviously not a good driver anyway, but now she's even worse because of her state of mind and then she refuses help, the guy can say he's scary, but even just saying, I'll go back and call, she doesn't even want that. She could have negotiated that. Look, I don't want the police, but could you call an ambulance or anything? Could you call a family member? Could you call this friend of mine? She doesn't do that. She's not in her right state of mind. She wants to get away from even there. To me, she heads out maybe down that dirt road. Where she ends up, I don't know, but. I know she's fit enough from what I understand to take off and cover a lot of distance that night, even before any searchers show up. So I know I couldn't keep up with her. And and it was really cold at that Mm -hmm. time. So, I mean, it doesn't take that long to, you know, she, she might've lasted the night, but she, she probably, if she stayed out in the elements, she probably would have froze to death pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, yes, remains can stay a long time but in the elements with wilderness and everything else animals
7: who knows
0: episode 26 was a recording from another live show we decided to get ambitious with this it was james renner clint harding in addition to myself and tim We had two competing theories at large in James and Clint, and John Smith was in the chat room as well, defending his theory, which led to a mature conversation where people could feel comfortable openly disagreeing with one another.
8: Uh, You know, again, if somebody picked up more just to take her five miles down the road, um, is it probable that they're also in that group that never heard about this case again? Wouldn't they remember? I mean, that's kind of odd. In the middle of winter, you pick up a woman and, and take her five miles. I know I might have that in the back of my mind and at one at some point in time come across more of a story and put two and two together. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sold on the tandem car theory. That's that's where I'm putting my credibility and uh, <laughs> and my name. Uh, you know, God help me. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the,
3: I've thought about the, the tandem, uh, tandem theory for a long time. You know, but then we've, I'm sure I've talked to James about this before. It's, you know, they'd have to have great timing. I mean, if they were ahead of Mara and she wrecked, they would have to know to turn around, go back, avoid the school bus driver, kind of hide out until everything kind of cleared off and then pick up Mara. And if they were behind Mara and she wrecked, it's the same kind of thing. You know, they're going to roll up on the scene with witnesses looking from both sides of the road at the wreck and, they're, I mean, they're going to grab Mara right away and, and take her up down the road uh, The school bus driver came after the wreck So, they, but, it, yeah.
8: but No matter what Somebody had, somebody that night No matter what, had perfect timing It was either Mora running away I agree It was either somebody abducting her Or somebody traveling in a the car The only thing we know for sure Is that somebody had perfect timing
0: Tim, what did you have for dinner last night?
2: Frozen pizza.
0: Wouldn't spice pork burgers have been just a little better than your frozen pizza? It sounds a lot better. Why? Are you getting at something? A little slice of beet on that. A little coleslaw on the side. You can make that yourself. How? Have you heard of Blue Apron?
2: Oh, you're talking about Blue Apron. So what do they do? They mail you food?
0: Yeah, Blue Apron mails you food. You get it in a box. It's all pre-portioned out. Fresh ingredients. The recipes are in the box. I'm playing Koi, Lance. I know all about Blue Apron. I love it. I'm sure they have a recipe
2: for Koi. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone.
0: And I remember in the beginning, you were telling me, hey, have somebody over, blow their minds, cook them a meal. And the more I started cooking with Blue Apron, you know what happened? You did that. I just ate it all because it's so good. Well, I don't blame
2: you, and I probably would have done the exact same thing. Listen to some of these menu items roasted pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples the
0: combinations are just so unique and delicious I I can't get enough of it almost gourmet right I would say so and there's no waste I know I keep saying it every single time but what I make is what I make and I have nothing left over and I have nothing I feel bad about throwing away
2: and for less than $10 per meal per person, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals.
0: Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook, or they'll make it right.
2: Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com missing.
0: You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com missing.
2: Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Episode 27 felt like a long time coming. We enjoyed the company of Massachusetts Public Defender's Office investigator Marley Davis, who first spoke to us about Mora's victimology the night of the disappearance.
4: There are studies that show that violence is influenced by opportunity, meaning that sometimes people aren't thinking about violence or thinking about committing a violent act until the opportunity to do so presents itself two of the major factors that contribute to crime are temptation and opportunity and i think there's no question that mora her being alone at night by herself you know poses the perfect opportunity basically every theory on victimology proves that your chances of being a victim increase or decrease depending on your current circumstances somebody said that uh, quote, it was dark. She was out in the middle of nowhere. This is not an opportune time for an abduction to take place. And that is completely false. In actuality, if you look at the risk factors, Mara was actually at a pretty high risk for being the victim of a crime at that point. She's traveling outside of her normal comfort zone. She's alone. It's nighttime. She's a young woman, by herself, who, you know, there have been reports that she may or may not have been drinking, and there's no cell phone service. She's basically completely alone, and presumably with no working vehicle. Just hypothetically, somebody somebody could have picked her up, and their original intention doesn't necessarily have to have been, I want to murder this girl. I want to hurt this girl. But intentions can change, and circumstances can certainly change and a situation can escalate.
0: Marley then helped us read some case questions and answers given to her by the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit and Attorney General's Office. Some interesting answers, but potentially even more interesting non-answers.
2: Before we play the clip, Lance, do you have a question that they didn't answer that would be interesting that we haven't given out yet?
0: We asked them one news article stated that police were investigating a voicemail on Morris's phone. Can you comment at all? on what the outcome of this inquiry was. That was one of the non-answers. Left blank.
2: Here is a clip from that episode.
0: For years, local rumors have circulated that Mora met with foul play and that her body was dumped in a number of locations, including bodies of water under the foundations of houses wood chippers, etc. At this time, do you believe any of the rumors to be more credible than others?
4: No. As explained above, all leads are still being investigated and almost anything is still possible.
2: Are there any that have been completely ruled out at this time?
4: Some rumors have been ruled out, but we are unable to comment on the specifics of those rumors.
0: How tuned in is law enforcement to the internet chatter regarding this case?
4: We are receptive to receiving information from whatever the source.
2: Have law enforcement garnered any useful information from what's been written online? Do you think the attention this case has gotten online has been a detriment to the investigation, or has it been helpful at all?
4: The attention this case has garnered has generated some leads, although none have panned out when investigated. However, Efforts to keep people's attention focused on the case are not detrimental if they have the potential to generate new leads.
2: We were hoping you could tell us your perspective on why you think this case is so popular. It seems to be very popular among the internet community slash armchair detectives. Why is this the case people are so fascinated with?
4: People love a mystery, and Mara Murray's disappearance is a mystery. The internet is also sometimes a forum for speculation and conspiracy theories, In spite of facts to the contrary or no facts at all, the combination seems to fuel much discussion in cases like this.
2: Episode 28 brought more new voices, this time from across the pond. We spoke to Professor David Wilson and Elizabeth Yardley about their paper on secondary victims of homicide in newer media.
0: We spoke with them about how the internet can really hurt victims' families, a little about our relationship with the Murray family the developing wound culture in society and new media, and their professional opinions on what happened to Maura Murray.
2: And before we play the clip, I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed this episode. It's one of my favorites. It was intimidating interviewing them in the first place because of their
0: article and because of how smart they are academically. I also feel like, A, it's one of my favorite episodes as well. But also, it's a uh, it's a very revealing episode. It's a very transparent episode in terms of what you and I spoke with to them. Uh, I think it's one of the first times that we kind of bared the soul of the podcast and a little bit of the um, behind the scenes and a little bit of uh, what what we're where 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 we were at mentally uh, at that point with the uh, with the case and the investigation and the podcast and everything that came along with it. Um, it was a very honest episode on our part, as much as they attempted to put our mind at ease, that we had nothing to be intimidated about with different levels of intelligence. Um, the more they did that, the more uh, nerve-wracking it was. But ultimately, incredibly cool people. We still maintain a very nice relationship with them, hope to work with them on uh, on this case and maybe some other case in the future. And here's the clip from that episode.
7: If I may observe, please, please forgive this kind of um, reflection um, uh, I don't know if if you were expecting it, but I, I did think initially there was um, uh, a, a kind of a negative tone towards the Murray family uh, in the earlier podcasts. And I think, actually, as the podcasts have gone on, there has been a much greater willingness to understand and put yourselves, walk in their shoes, and that has become more much more apparent um, and I think there was a Rubicon moment for you when you thought mm, actually we've never really spoken to the Murrays and when you did start to speak to the Murrays then that allowed that difference in tone to emerge
9: and I think it was uh, it, and partly the, the, the way that the, the media um, in general um, deal with the families of missing people and, and the families of people who are victims of crime, um, they can put their barriers up a bit and be a bit protective. So sometimes it's about finding that gatekeeper who will give you access to the family rather than, you know, approaching them directly. So so it varies from one case to, to the next. But but no, I think you've been incredibly sensitive in, in, in recent episodes and, and having uh, John Smith as that mediator i think has been a really important part of the process
7: i think in terms of the, the 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 international example albeit it's a british example but it's so well known it's international now about how families need the publicity and then worry about their inability to control the publicity is clearly the mccann case about madeline mccann who goes missing and and of course has still never been found. And of course the McCann's were very um, desperate for media attention uh, just after their daughter had disappeared. And then gradually as the days and weeks and months and now years have passed, um, they're having to sue um, uh, police officers in Portugal. They're having to get injunctions taken out every single person in this country would have a view about the McCann's and they just simply can't control that process. So the, the, there's that tiger by the tail um, analogy again, that you, you, you want the publicity, but ultimately, uh, ultimately, you can't control where that publicity might take you. And I, I think for you guys, in relation to the Murries, you're kind of you've kind of recognised that. It seemed to me, or maybe I'm wrong, but I felt there was a recognition that you had to then think. Well, wait a minute. There, there's a real family out there who are actually grieving and trying to make sense of what might have happened to this girl that was related to them. Why don't we ask them about how they're feeling and what they must be thinking about every single day that their daughter, their sister, their loved one hasn't been found.
2: In episode 29, we spoke to a man named Rick Graves, who helped Fred Murray in searching for his daughter, dating back to 2004 and 2005. He brought a grizzled vibe and had some great things to say about how extensively he and Fred searched for Mora.
10: When I went out there, I met Fred. I, uh, I uh, after that first day, you know, I came I came home and I said I said I, I can't do it no more. It's it's very heartbreaking. To go out there and not find anything. Um,
0: that was after the first day.
10: Yeah. Wow. You know. Uh, yeah, I went out there and, and uh, yeah, it, it's very heartbreaking not to find anything. And I said, uh, I told her I wasn't going to go n- do it again. Well, the next weekend comes and I, I had thought about it all week, and I said, I'm going back out there. <laughs> so it, 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 every weekend um, I was out there, pretty much. Uh, quite a bit for uh, every weekend um, that first year, um, searching with Fred, and there you know there were a few weekends in between, uh, a couple of here and there that Fred couldn't make it, and I'd go out there and and you know search down stuff that he had because he had, he had to work, um, and you know I had to work too, and so and then there were weekends I couldn't be out there, but. Uh, other other people would go would go up and, and help Fred out as well
0: consistently for a full year at some on some level that area was searched every single weekend
10: uh, consistently yes
0: overall how many miles would you say you know if you, or if you could give um, radiuses say we covered within 5 miles of this place or 5 miles of this place um, do you have any sense of uh, of what distances you covered in the in those
10: areas Well, when it was all said and done, I'd probably say about uh, uh, 15 to 20 miles around. Um, It would would be a rough guess. We would beat the hell out of those woods that day. Gravel pits, woods, uh, you know, everything. You know, we'd basically search uh, areas downhill instead of, you know, not, not so much uphill because... If you're driving your car and you were to throw throw something out of your car window, let's say, uh, it, you more tend to throw it on a, on the downhill slope rather than on the uphill slope. Um, it's just the way it is. It's, uh, if you were to try to get rid of a body, you you would do it on a downhill slope and not drag it up a hill.
0: Were those actual thoughts that were going through people's? Was that verbalized?
10: I, I don't know if it was verbalized. I think it was more of a a a, a gimme than, than anything.
2: Episode 30 was a conversation between Alex Clogston and the woman who was previously
0: known to the community as Witness A. Karen McNamara opened up publicly for the first time about what she saw the night Maura disappeared. If true, the implications are extremely controversial.
2: It was actually our idea to have Alex interview Karen because of their past relationship. Alex was very good friend with Karen's son dating all the way back to high school. Instead of having us interview her when we have never met her, we thought it would be a lot easier for everyone
0: involved if Alex interviewed her. Easier and more comfortable for Karen. I remember the period of time and how long it took to establish a level of trust with Karen. Alex is from the area. Karen is from the area. And the more we spoke to Alex about Karen, the more we realized that we really didn't have any business being the ones to ask her such pointed questions, personal questions. Alex was clear in his questioning, uh, concise and I think Karen was instantly—actually, I know Karen was instantly comfortable with them. We've received a a few comments about being wary that witness testimony is historically not accurate or reliable. And people have questioned why we would have a woman 12 years later, 12 and a half years later on, remembering these things. I want to clear up the, the misconception here. This isn't something she remembered now. This was something that she had filed back when, when it happened. So we're not putting somebody on who just remembered. This is somebody who has had this statement out there for 12 and a half years.
11: I had a cancellation, and I left about 7.15. And when I was going up the road past the hospital, I think it's Swiftwater Road, um, a police car came up behind me with its lights on. It was car 001, and it passed me.
12: Now, when you say car 001, was this mm-hmm. a sedan or an SUV? It was
11: SUV. It was not a sedan. It was an SUV. Mm-hmm. So
12: you're just kind of using the term car to say yes. vehicle, which is kind of one of the yes. criticisms online. Continue. Yes.
11: And then it passed me with its lights on, and it continued on up the road. And then after I'd gone down Goose Lane and came out onto 112, I went to take a right, Uh, right by the store there, in car 001 passed me again, which I thought was kind of curious, that um, the same police car, still with its lights on, and still going fast, and he went up um, 112, headed east, um, as I was, and I know there's a place there where the, it's like rolling hills, and like the police lights, I could just see flash on and off, because it You know, we were going over hills at different times, and he got ahead of me. When I got to the um, corner by the weathered barn, you know, um, that sharp curve there, I saw the police car, the um, SUV 001, and it looked like it was nose-to-nose with another car, um, a dark-colored sedan. And it didn't appear to me as though that car was really in an accident. It appeared as though it was... Parked on the wrong side of the road,
12: and you also said that when you saw the vehicle nose to nose, the blue lights were still on mm-hmm. in the SUV, mm-hmm. and there were no no lights on on the Saturn.
11: I I didn't see any on the Saturn. <coughs> I didn't see that. No.
12: Did you happen to notice if any doors on the Saturn oh. were open? You didn't notice, or there were none. If open? I
11: did, I don't remember.
12: When you're pulling out on Goose Lane from Goose Lane onto 112, and mm-hmm. it pa- it's uh, the SUV is already on 112 mm-hmm. and passes you, that's correct. Or during any of this. Did you happen to notice any features of the driver, like facial hair, not at all hairstyle glasses not at that all. sort of thing? Mm-mm. It was dark well, one question I have is, does that look like the s u v that you saw that night?
11: Yep, absolutely and, and I've seen it since i've I've seen that since, so yeah. That's the car.
2: Episode 31 was audio from our time spent at the UMass Outing Club cabin in Bethlehem, New Hampshire.
0: Known to the community as one of the possibilities where Mora was headed that night, we hiked up to the cabin with friends of the podcast, John Smith, Rick Graves, Alex Clogston, and newcomer Dan. Upon arrival, we were fortunate enough to meet the caretaker who was there with an assistant, and he was gracious enough to grant us entry, and he provided a quick interview.
2: Pretty spooky being at the cabin, I would say, although it's hard to say definitively if we think Mora was there or not. Just the fact that people talk about it still makes you wonder, and it makes it a spooky place to be for that small period of time.
0: And it adds another level to the whole thing. Of course, there is a cabin up there owned by the UMass Outing Club where she, was go- where she ends up going missing. She wasn't far away from the cabin. So you can see how the connections can be made. Ultimately, that probably was not the case. But it's just another layer to the case that, that seems to keep peeling back more and more layers. Are you oh. still in touch with them? Uh, St. Baghdadi? Oh, um,
9: I haven't spoken with him probably yeah. in ten years.
0: So. Oh, really?
12: Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: So he's not, uh, he's not, um, uh, he what you do? Not, not one
9: of the active alums, I guess, but yeah. I'm sure he's in touch with other people who were club members at the time.
12: Yeah. Do you know when the last time he was active in the yeah.
9: club? He did a big canoe trip with me in <laughs> 2000. Three maybe. Um, yeah, we we're, we're going back a dozen years yep, anyway. Yeah, That's quite a while. Has
3: he and been to I know this he's cabin? Done other, before?
9: like pretty intense hiking, backpacking stuff. Do you, know, do you know if he knew of this cabin? I'm sure he knew about it. I can't say whether he was actually here because I was never here at the same time he was. Yeah. Um, Anyone who's an active member of the club would know about the cabin.
2: In episode 32, we spoke to MJA Inc. Investigations' Mark Harper. Mark is a very interesting man, and he and his group have many years of experience helping missing person and murder cases. He and the rest of MJA believe they have isolated a specific area where Mora's body could have been disposed of.
0: Mark Harper was somebody who kind of flew under the radar, at least in uh, the circle of investigators that we've been looking at and speaking with. He came in with, uh, with some pretty unique theories. And he also brought up the Brianna Maitland case,
2: which we will be talking more in depth about in a future episode. Here's the clip from Mark Harper.
9: All of a sudden, in front of me, a police officer pulled up and said, uh, in a sedan, said, Haverhill. And uh, he got out of his car. He come up to me and he said, uh, I see you're back again. And I said, yes, we are. And um he said, "Well, when do you plan on going home?" And I says, "Uh when I when we get our work completed." And uh he gets closer to me. He puts his um hands up on top of the hood of the car. He bends his head down. He says, "Listen. He says, "I want a fucking date when you're going home, and I want one now." And I looked at him and I says, "How about this?" How about none of your fucking business? We're not breaking no laws. And that was the end of it. I rolled up my window, and what he said after, I don't have a clue. He stood there for about 15, 20 seconds after I rolled up the window, ranting and raving, and I just ignored him.
0: Did you know who this person was?
9: I don't know his name, but I've seen him on uh, previous searches. And it just struck me kind of odd after it was over and everything. Either he got a phone call or uh, he had seen us in town or whatever.
2: Why do you think they don't want you working on this?
9: They don't want outsiders in. Matter of fact, there's been other groups that's offered their assistance where they have to have uh, police uh, permission to come in. And they were, were refused. Well, where we... We try to get their permission to work together, but if they say no, we go about our business. We don't have to follow those rules as far as uh, uh, police jurisdictions and all that. I mean, we can ask if they want to work together or can we assist in any way or whatever. And like I said, if they say no, we just go about our business and do what we're supposed to do.
0: In episode 33, sort Sort of. of Unbeknownst to Tim and myself, a young woman named Erin Deborah Larkin had been behind the scenes on her own investigating in detail the dispatch logs and anything of fact on paper accurately documented at the time of the accident. She reached out to us via email. She had very good things to present to us as far as investigative techniques and her attention to detail. And after communicating with her and establishing a level of trust, we decided that her information and her method of investigation was proper enough to to put out on the podcast.
2: And she also was track teammates with Kate Markopoulos and technically Maura Murray, so Erin gives a little personal detail to how she felt about Kate's response to Mora disappearing.
1: I remember, I mean, I sort of remember, like, flashes, uh, at least as it pertains to, like, the case. I remember Kate's face as she was talking to, to our coach and explaining uh, what she knew, which was basically nothing. Um, I think it was a Wednesday that the coach had, was just, like, asking her where what had happened and what happened the weekend before and um, and what the situation was. And she was just... It seemed like she had a hard time explaining because she really had no idea. She seemed really surprised at what was happening and sort of overwhelmed. didn't seem that she was lying or holding anything back at all to me.
0: I remember when we started this about 10 episodes in... We were questioning whether or not we had enough material to move forward past episode 15, episode 18, episode 20, episode 25, and to be at this point where we release an episode giving a table of contents for anybody coming on to this case with fresh eyes is, uh, is something I didn't expect back when we started this.
2: Certainly not. It's definitely been a wild ride, and I hope everyone out there listening also feels like it's been a journey worth taking right along with us. Thank you very much for listening, and go to blueapron.com missing and get three free meals on your first order.